1: Today we're taking a deeper dive into the census. Now if that sounds a little dry to you, those numbers do a whole lot of figuring for the entire country. It determines how many seats a state will get in Congress. It determines who gets a share of federal money, through everything from block grants, to money for schools, to money for just about everything the federal government helps pay for. A little later in the show we'll talk about some of the political implications of the census and look at redistricting. First, we're going to look at the census numbers and how they'll affect Florida. Our guest is Mike Schneider, who works for the Associated Press in Orlando. Mike, welcome to Florida Matters.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: All right, Mike, the big news seems to be that the white population, quote unquote, went down for the first time in the nation's history. And at the same time, there was more than 300% jump in the number of people who clicked off both the white box and that of another race. So how is that looking in Florida?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Florida is very much part of that vanguard of uh, a demographic change. Um, As you said, um, for the first time on record, the the share of uh, non-Hispanic whites uh, declined nationwide, and now it's under 60 percent. It's about 58 percent. The story's a little more nuanced than just, uh, you know, white people declining, Um, as you mentioned, Uh, the percentage of people who identified as some other race and also some other race and white grew significantly. And so it's a little more nuanced uh, than that. And and, um, also uh, more people are identifying as multiracial. And also um, there is an assumption that that jump in um, the category of some other race, along with white, Um, the Hispanic population. Uh, This has been an issue that's been going on um, for several censuses, but oftentimes uh, the Hispanic population is not sure how to answer uh, the race question. And on the census form, the race question is a separate question than the Hispanic background question or the ethnic background question. Uh, And so uh, there has been proposals in the past to combine the two questions so that it is more clear on uh, what's being asked once again you know uh, the belief is that uh, a lot of this rise in um, some other races is is to some extent driven by uh, Latinos uh, who um, oftentimes don't know uh, you know what racial category they should answer
1: you know the whole definition of what white is has really changed over the years you know early in our nation's history Irish uh, were not considered white. And, you know, the Irish look pretty white, right? Um, so later, Southern Europeans, Jews, Italians weren't considered white, but now they are. So it, it's kind of a broad spectrum rather than some kind of like narrow definition that could be influenced by one's prejudices during that era, that time.
0: A- absolutely, uh, definitely. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's an example of how many people believe that race is a social construct. And uh, there's so much more knowledge nowadays about people's backgrounds than we even had a decade ago, uh, thanks to the rise of DNA kits and, uh, you know, things like Ancestry.com. And so you have people who might have put on their census form uh, that they were white a decade ago, but in the interim decade, uh, they took one of these tests and discovered uh, that they have American Indian background. And so... In that case, they um, either put themselves as uh, multiracial or they put themselves, if it's say, another background, they'll put themselves as, as white in some other race. So uh, there's a lot more self-knowledge, I guess, about people's backgrounds. There, there's uh, a lot more awareness, I think, that, that to some degree race is a social construct.
1: Yeah, that's another question is, what's the, what's the implications of all this in the, in the real world?
0: The implication is that, you know, we're becoming a much more diverse country and we're becoming a much more diverse state. I mean, here in Florida, we grew by uh, 2.7 million residents and, you know, about half of that growth uh, uh, was driven by, by Latinos. And, you know, Florida, in Florida, the, the non-Hispanic white population did not decline, but it, it just grew at a much uh, smaller rate. And so, uh, you know, non-Hispanic whites still make up a majority of Floridians, but um, it's just over 50%. So in the next decade, that will likely fall below
1: 50%. So how does this change the political scene at all? You know, a lot of Democrats believe that demography is destiny and they're going to capture a lot of these these new voters from other lands and such. But that didn't really work out that way in the last election. I mean, Trump captured more of the Hispanic vote In the last election than he did in 2016, you know, in places like the Rio Grande Valley in Texas and even here in Kissimmee in the Orlando area. So, um, you know, maybe it's just it's it's really still up in the air what the political implications of all this are going to be.
0: Right. And we'll be uh, uh, getting at that next year during the redistricting process. But right. You know, the Democrats might think that uh, uh, demographics are destiny unless Republicans control the redistricting process. A big interesting piece of that process is, I think, going to be in the villages, which is this retirement community, as you know, uh, that's uh, about an hour's drive northwest of Orlando. And it was uh, one of the fastest growing places in the country. And it's it's overwhelmingly white and Republican. So um, even though we've had um, you know population growth that was driven by Hispanic and you know uh, it, it, and a lot of it was in Central Florida, Osceola County, which is south of Orlando, was the state's fastest growing county. Uh, when it comes to redistricting, the Republican lawmakers who are controlling the process. Might be able to, you know, draw districts that use that population growth uh, in the villages and in Sumter County to carve out districts that, uh, you know, weaken uh, Democratic strength. So, uh, so that's I think is going to be uh, one of the most interesting parts of the process. Is is this phenomenal growth in Sumter County and also the villages?
1: Right. So the Republicans who control the levers of power in Tallahassee really have the uh, the ability to draw the districts. Pretty much as much as they want uh, with keeping in the Fair Districts Amendment in mind, though, right?
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, as you know, uh, last time in uh, 2010, when this was done, it took four years of litigation before that was finally settled in, in the courts. But, you know, the expectation is uh, it's not going to be all that different from from last time.
1: Let's talk about the, uh, the Republican Party. Um, a lot of people believe that their base is shrinking. Their mostly white base is shrinking. And do numbers like this maybe harden people's opinions uh, about the future of their country and it might make them drift more to the right on one side or more left on the, on the other side? Do you think it's going to kind of harden their opinions about the way this country is going?
0: I, You know, it's been interesting. Uh, The redistricting numbers were released in August 12th, and the reaction has been pretty interesting. If you look at, you know, political affiliation, it seems like those more conservative Republican leaning looked at the numbers with a degree of alarm. Uh, But then maybe those who are uh, more liberal leaning or Democratic leaning kind of look at the results with optimism. So uh, to some degree, yeah, I think you know these numbers are um, possibly going to be playing into that narrative, but I think that's why it's important to um, articulate the nuance uh, that are in these numbers when we talk about white and um, you know people identify white and some other race, in that it's it's not black and white, so to speak, um, as it might seem. There's a lot more nuance uh, to the numbers than. Uh, say it might be articulated in a headline.
1: Right, so the Hispanic population, which is burgeoning in this in this state and the country, is really going to probably determine the future makeup of uh, of politics. So do you think the Republicans have to or will start targeting Hispanics more, maybe easing off on their border rhetoric and maybe appealing to the social conservatism that is inherent in many of these cultures from where they come from?
0: Right. And, um, and especially in a place like Florida, where um, the Latino population is, you know, a bit in the politics of the Latino population are a bit different than, say, the rest of the country in that uh, they traditionally have been uh, more Republican leaning. So I think definitely, for sure, in a state like Florida, um, you know, the Republicans are going to be targeting the Latino population and see real benefit in um you know, welcoming them into the party, whether it's on social issues or economic issues.
1: Right. I think that was borne out a lot in the vote, The uh, particularly the, the large Puerto Rican population that has come to uh, Kissimmee area. You know, it's not taken for granted that they'll automatically vote Democratic, uh, like a lot of people had predicted. You know, they came here after fleeing Hurricane Maria, and they come from a very conservative, social Background, um, you know, things like you know, women's rights and um, socialism is the big quote unquote issue that was talked about a lot during the last election. The Republicans are trying to appeal to that anti-socialistic instinct from people who come from places like Cuba and Venezuela.
0: Right, right, yeah. I mean, that's definitely more of an issue in South Florida. Um, you know, in Central Florida, where I am. There is a belief that uh, the new arrivals from the island are um, right for going uh, with either Democrats or Republicans just because, uh, you know, the, the island politics are different than uh, the mainland and the Democratic and Republican parties are um, perceived differently on the island than they, they are, uh, say, in Florida. So I think um, both parties see opportunities as far as uh, trying to win those voters over. Do you
1: think the balance of power in the state is shifting maybe more towards central Florida from the the heavily Democratic areas in in South Florida?
0: Well, I mean, that's kind of been a story over the past 20 years, right? As uh, central Florida has grown by uh, leaps and bounds. So I think that's kind of been an ongoing narrative.
1: Mike Schneider is a reporter for the Associated Press based in Orlando. Mike, thanks so much for coming on Florida Matters.
0: Okay, thank you very much.
1: This is Florida Matters. Our conversation continues in just a moment. Welcome back to Florida Matters. Now we'll take a look at the political implications of the census. We're talking with Michael McDonald, a political science professor at the University of Florida. Professor, welcome to Florida Matters.
2: Great to be with you.
1: So, you know, as you know, this was probably the, the most difficult circumstances for a cen- census in recent memory. Not only did we have a raging pandemic that kept pushing the deadlines back, but civil unrest because of the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matters movement. Plus, the Trump administration tried to require proof of citizenship for undocumented immigrants. So, uh, have you heard a lot of stories about the difficulties of getting an accurate headcount?
2: Yes, there were a number of challenges and you've outlined uh, many of them. And uh, in addition to some of the response issues that we had with the census, with um, maybe some communities that were reticent to answer the the questionnaire because they were afraid that their citizenship status may affect their um, ability to stay in the United States. Uh, We also had challenges with census enumerators getting into homes and Uh, getting just regular people to answer uh, the questions, especially controlled access group quarters, as they would call them, apartment buildings, student dorms. Um, We can actually see that here at the University of Florida uh, where where I teach. One of the dorms on campus uh, supposedly had only seven people in it according to the Census Bureau, but that dorm holds around 350 uh, students. Um, so I don't know if that was just a problem with the Census Bureau getting into that uh, particular dorm and, and getting students to answer the questions or if there was something else that was going on there. But um, these are challenges that we're seeing pretty much across the country, and it's not just that one instant. But for now, uh, what we have are the numbers that the Census Bureau generated. Um, they've checked over the numbers. That's one of the delays that that we had in producing these data was all the verification checks that the Census Bureau is running on the numbers. So we hope that they're good quality, but that doesn't mean that there aren't just a few little data gremlins running around in there that um, may throw off the numbers. And these could be really important. I mean, we're talking about redistricting right now because these numbers are coming out and and these numbers determine political representation, um, but they also determine lots of other things. So like block grants that come from states and the federal government based on population, decisions that companies make on to where they're going to locate their franchises, um, You know, lots and lots of different applications uh, for these data. So the reliability of them um, are very important. And I know myself and many other people are looking at them very carefully, these numbers, so that uh, we can have accurate data as, as far as we can get it. Well,
1: as, as you know, a lot of the figures show the uh, the white population, the percentage of the population is declining for the first time in American history. And the Hispanic share is also uh, rising very much. But do you think because of the, the whole hullabaloo about requiring proofs of citizenship, that sort of thing, that maybe the Hispanic share, the numbers were undercounted at all?
2: Well, there's a lot going on here, too. Um, not only Did we have all these challenges with the conduct of the census? Census also changed the questions that it asks regarding race and uh, ethnicity in the country. And basically what census did was allow people more leeway to identify themselves as more than just being white. Now, they did this in the past too, but it, it seems that the way in which the question was asked Um, might have prompted uh, some people to select a racial or ethnic category other than white than they might not have in the past. And so that decline in the white population might be real. Um, There's a lot of evidence just to say that uh, we know that the white population has not been increasing as much as uh, other populations, communities in in the country um, but it also may be at least partially due to the way in which the question uh, was asked. Did it affect Hispanics? Again, hard to tell at this point. Uh, again, people are poring over, over these data. Community groups are going to be looking at the numbers that they know exists within their communities, and they'll be comparing it with what the Census Bureau says. And so right now, we don't have a lot of evidence to say that there was a Hispanic undercount that was much larger than it has been in the past, but there has been a Hispanic undercount in the past. So undoubtedly, it's there. The real question is, was it any of a larger undercount than it was in prior censuses?
1: Well, you know, let's talk about the political implications of this. Uh, many Democrats, they seem to be making hay of the new, of the new numbers, saying a, uh, a less white, more black and brown America favors their party in the long term. But that's not really so cut and dry now, is it?
2: Well, that's a yeah another very difficult question to answer. Um, one of the surprises that came out of the census data was that um, there was a lot of expectation that the urban areas were going to um, lose population to a certain degree. And really it was going to be this explosive growth of suburban and exurban areas of the country where we were going to see the population growth. And, and that actually, wasn't quite what the Census Bureau showed. um, The urban areas, yes, have lost population. And and there are some places here in Florida, like in Miami and in um, uh, Tampa area, that did lose population, but they didn't lose nearly as much as was forecasted. And where we did see uh, real population losses were much more in rural areas. And so you may think that, well, this means for redistricting purposes, because we have to have equal population districts there the, there might be some rebalancing of representation that is going to lean more favorably to urban areas and you know that is might be true to a certain extent but there's also gerrymandering it, it's possible for republicans who have their base primarily in these urban areas um, they can still manage to crack up and divide up these urban areas in, into many districts and dilute the voting strength of those urban areas. So I don't know, at least for in terms of representation in Congress and the House of Representatives and representation in state legislative elections uh, districts, we have to actually see the districts as they're drawn to know really what the effects are going to be. And, and again, people have only had this data for about like a week or so. So um, people are just getting to the point of drawing districts and, and seeing what the possibilities are.
1: Right, so so much of this population growth we're seeing has occurred in, in the South and the West where Republicans are in control of most of the state houses. So this gives them a chance to control the levers of how the, uh, the districts are drawn. Uh, Florida, Republicans have gotten in trouble in the past. Um, They've had judges question the makeup of some of the districts. We've had the Fair District Amendment being passed. Yet, I was on a conference call about two weeks ago where some people who were associated with Fair Districts were saying that the Republicans in Tallahassee are using the pandemic as a cover to not have a lot of public participation and input into the drawing of these districts. Would you say that's a fair analogy?
2: Well, I don't know about it being a cover, but certainly the pandemic and the uh, and the delay in the release of the census data by about six months meant that there was going to be uh, less opportunity for uh, or fewer opportunities for people to have um, input into the process uh, once the data became available and once maps become available. But I mean my the past experience with a state like uh, Florida, uh, where the legislature really is the primary driver for the drawing of districts is that the legislature will wait to the very, very last minute. There'll be some shell bill moving through the uh, legislature um, and then you know like maybe five minutes before midnight on the day that the uh, um, new redistricting plan needs to be adopted. That's when the legislature will do a substitute amendment on that shell bill and vote in mass to enact a new redistricting plan. So I don't know. Maybe Republicans in the state legislature who control the process might have had more opportunity to and, and change the way in which they do the process, but they weren't required to do it. So I, I, where we we're seeing less of an opportunity for public input would really be in these commission states where there's. A requirement for a commission to have uh, public input we don't have a commission for florida it's the legislature so it's really to the whim of the legislature when they're going to make the maps ready and uh, when they're going to release them and i'll I'll tell you like right now undoubtedly the legislature has maps Uh, i've already been drawing maps and uh, lots of people have already i'm sure they have a test map by now as to how they wanna divide up the state. They probably have several scenarios already. Um, so it's possible right now, I would say, that a consultant or the legislature or the committee in the legislature could make some maps available for people to look at and provide public uh, input on. But again, it's that's possible, but what's probable is that we're gonna to have to wait until the absolute end of the deadline. And the reason for that is, well, one, it's a fait accompli, um, so that there's less time for a group like Fair Districts to challenge those maps in the court. And, well, that's really the main reason <laughs> why we're going to see it. Uh, and, the, you know, with that less opportunity, it'll give um, the legislature a go at having uncontested districts for the 2022 midterm elections.
1: And what are these deadlines? Is there some kind of setting concrete deadline for all this?
2: It really depends. Like, there are some states that have explicit deadlines in their constitutions. Some of these deadlines are set by legislative sessions, uh, and so you know when the legislation legislative session ends, and you know that that's when you can have the the plan adopted. But sometimes you'll have a failure of a plan to be adopted, and then the governor will call a special session for redistricting purposes and extend that deadline. So you can't really count on necessarily end of session deadlines. You have to anticipate that there may be a special session. So the other way to do this is to, to work back from the point where uh, you have to have an election and the, the deadline there would be the candidate filing deadline for the primary elections because we have to know where the, the districts are going to be so that candidates know which district to file for, to run an office for so um, you'd have to back it up from there. So you're looking, you know, sometime in the spring. Now, it's also been true, though, in the past that if there's court action and a court does find that the redistricting plan violates a law or a state constitution or a federal constitution, that um, a court could come in and uh, delay primaries as well. So that's actually happened in the past uh, in some states. So that's not out of the realm of possibility that, even if you try to delay as much as you can um, to get a new plan in to try to avoid court action, you may yet see a court step into the fray and uh, order a delay on primary elections.
1: Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, the final arbiter in Florida will be the state Supreme Court, which has a solid majority of conservative judges on that as well. So they might Dilute the intent of the Fair Districts Amendment?
2: Yes, for um, there is a um, the state Supreme Court, um, and the state Supreme Court actually reviews the state legislative maps as part of the process here in Florida. Um, So that's unlike many other states where the um, state Supreme Court would be more a a place where you take a lawsuit to. Uh, Here um, in Florida, there's an actual review. But there's also the federal government too, especially with regards to the Voting Rights Act. Even though some important parts of it have been uh, neutered by the Supreme Court, there's still Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And um, it may be that there could be a violation of uh, voting rights in Florida too. And in particular, what I'm looking at is, you know we, we have our existing districts that are for the minority communities, but there's um, I think there's also uh, going to have to be a, uh, Hispanic, predominantly Puerto Rican uh, district in the central part of the state where uh, District 9 currently is located. So uh, I can already draw a 56 percent Hispanic uh, district there, congressional district. I have not looked deeply at all the legal issues, but I I think if one's not drawn there, there could likely be some sort of federal litigation around voting rights.
1: Right. So that ninth congressional district you were referring to, that includes the touristy areas of Kissimmee and Outer Orlando, that had the largest population gain of any congressional district in the nation, I believe a 40% increase in the last decade alone is what I read. So uh, that in the Sarasota area had a 30% increase. So you, you're you saying these two areas will probably get one of the seats, the extra seats in Congress that we're likely to get?
2: Yeah, uh, Florida gained a congressional district through apportionment. And if you Look at the population growth and declines in the state um, the sort of north part of the state lost population but Pensacola and Jacksonville gained population so it looks like a rebalancing there of those northern districts with the two bookends looks to be a reasonable solution to how you might draw those districts so then if you're looking where you're going to put this, this next district uh, that we gained you would think it's going to be somewhere in the I-4 corridor, because that's where primarily most of the population gains were uh, in the state outside of Pensacola and um, Jacksonville.
1: All right. So the I-4 corridor gets even more political importance during the next presidential campaign too, right?
2: Yeah. And it's going to also affect uh, state legislative um, redistricting too, because even though we didn't gain or lose seats because in the state legislature, because those are set and fixed, those districts still need to be balanced for population. So if there's a place that gained population, it's going to gain representation probably, but you might still, if you're the Republicans, come in and uh, try to carve up and slice up those uh, democratic communities in those areas in multiple ways. So it's not a guarantee that just because some areas that have been trending democratic in the state gained population doesn't necessarily mean that Democrats are going to gain representation.
1: Professor, thanks so much for your time and comments. Good speaking with you. Michael McDonald is a political science professor at the University of Florida. That's it for our show this week. DeNora Prevost is our producer. I'm Steve Newborn. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters. Hope you'll join us again next week.